Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that on this blessed day we can come before your throne and just worship you. Thank you that in our worst moment, when we turned and we put everything to the side and we forsook you, that you still, you still came. You sent our Savior, your only begotten Son, Jesus, to just cover our sins. I pray we would just take a couple moments. Can we just silence our hearts? Can we just focus on him this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you. We pray, Holy Spirit, can you just fill this place? Can you open our eyes, open our ears, our heart, our minds, just to to understand your word, to put it on our hearts, to know it better? Father, we pray, just guide this message. Help us to understand from the very beginning why we needed a Savior, someone to defeat our enemy. Father, we just pray these things in your holy, in your heavenly name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is so great to see each and every one of you. I see a couple are still having some turkey coma stuff going on, but that's okay. Because this morning I will not be feeding you a turkey, I promise. It'll be the Word of God instead. Now, if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Genesis 3. That's where we're going to be spending a majority of this morning at. Uh, But before we get started, you may have noticed that we have our candles here at the beginning of the sanctuary, and that's because we're marking the Advent season. And if you don't know what Advent is, that's okay. Before I came to this church, I had no clue either. To help explain what Advent season is, I'll let you know that it officially begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and it continues until Christmas Eve or day. With this, the word Advent is formed from a Latin word, meaning coming or arrival. It is the celebration of the first advent of Jesus in humility and the anxious waiting of his second advent in glory. The season of Advent is a time for remembering and rejoicing, watching and waiting. Now, there are a variety of ways to celebrate the Advent season, depending on the tradition and background. Many people use an Advent calendar, typically made up of 24 windows, that should contain scripture, stories, poems, or even gifts that kind of count down until Christmas. As each window is open and the final day draws closer, expectations increase. This reminds us of the hopeful yet anxious awaiting people, uh, God's people had as they experienced the long need for the Savior Jesus to come. Some people use an Advent wreath made up of five candles, which we will be doing. The symbolism of these candles is borrowed from the emphasis of Scripture, of Jesus Christ being the light of the world. You may recall, as we recently studied in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we read, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, each week, a new candle is lit in anticipation of Christmas Eve. The last candle, called the Christ candle, is lit on Christmas Eve to represent Jesus' first advent. Through this ever-increasing light penetrating the darkness, we see a picture of the gospel. Advent is a significant time in the life of the church. It's an opportunity for us to remember God's promise to send the one who would overcome sin and death forevermore. 
Now, as we get into this Advent season, I want you to pause and reflect on a couple things, because typically this is that time of year, and I'll be the first to admit, where we're overloaded. We have family gatherings, we have meetings, we have deadlines, we have gifts to go get, and yet somewhere in this process we get so wrapped up that we barely have time to still ourselves and truly reflect on why we even have joy to begin with. Perhaps we should look at it like this. How often do we as Christians really sit down and think about this joy? I mean, you you hear that cheesy slogan all the time. What is the reason for the season? And we as Christians love to sit there and point back and be like, ha, that's Christ. And if somebody pushes back and sat there and said, okay, why do I even need Christ? What would you do? Would you know where to take that? You see, the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So my question for you is this. Are you prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you this season? Now, I don't know about you, but when we came up with this and when we looked at this, this convicted me because I'm often one of those that I don't slow down. I don't look at the reason that we even have joy in this season. As such, during these holidays, I want you to truly dig deep into the gospel. That's what we're going to do as a church, and we're going to think deeply about the reason we have hope to begin with. Each week, we'll be covering passages from the Old and New Testaments to show how Jesus is our hope in every season of life. We'll start today by going back to Genesis 3 to see where it all began, to see why we need a Savior, why we had a broken relationship in the first place. Next week, we'll cover and we'll discuss the reason we needed the true light in the darkness. And on our third Sunday, we're going to cover why we need God to be among us. On December 19th, we're going to talk about why we needed a shepherd to lead, protect, and defeat us. And finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll see why we need Jesus, who is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our eternal Father and Prince of Peace. Simply stated, this Advent season, we're going to look at the reason for hope and joy, not just in this season, but in every season of our lives. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3 so we can reflect on why we needed a Savior. Now, a little bit of background information on the first two chapters before we get to Genesis 3 is that we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth simply from speaking. For six days, he worked, and on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he needed to, but because he was creating a pattern for mankind to follow. We even get to see the first hints of the Trinity in here if you pay attention. You see, in verse 2 of the Bible, chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 2, we see the Spirit of God hovering above the waters. And further yet, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So we see the mystery of that three in one already at the very beginning. But beyond the awesomeness of just seeing the Trinity here, we also had the great privilege and honor to see what God created us to do, and that was to have dominion to rule underneath him, beside him. He created us to have this dominion over the whole earth. Now stop and reflect on that for a second. God created us, and he could have done anything he ever wanted. We could have had zero purpose in this life. 
but he didn't create us that way. Instead, we were created to have a beautiful relationship in having dominion under God and cultivating the pristine earth. Now tell me that's not an awesome heavenly father. Moreover, we had free access to the man who created everything. We had access to God himself. It's not that God just left us off to the side and said, hey, I created it, it's yours, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with you guys or this creation. No, he loved us, he wanted to be with us, and we're going to see that in our chapter today. And while he was with us, he only gave us one rule in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, commanding us that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, pause and think at what we know to this point. God created us, and he gives us free access to him in a perfect, rightful relationship. He lets us rule under him. And the only thing he tells us not to do is eat from one, one tree. It's the only rule. And yet something goes astray. Let's go ahead and turn now to verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 3 to see what's going on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, starting in verse 1, we see multiple things occurring with this serpent. You know, the first is something that we learned a couple weeks back when we talked a little bit about Hebrew and the sentence construction order. You may remember I gave kind of a cheesy little example of, in English, we often say, Jared threw the ball. That's how we would say a sentence in English. But in Hebrew narrative, they don't speak that way. Instead, they put the action first. Threw Jared the ball. The action always comes first, and when it doesn't, the Hebrew is pointing out, hey, you need to pay attention to what is coming first since we didn't put the action there. And here, what we find out in Hebrew is the word nahas for serpent is actually the first word, meaning extra emphasis is being placed on, you need to pay attention to this serpent. What's going on with him? Even more so, what you can notice is that every time we see this serpent, as we read the, uh, chapter 3 here, notice how the definitive article is always there. The definitive article being the. In other words, this was the serpent. This wasn't a serpent. It was the serpent. It's the serpent we know later on as Satan, as it's revealed in Revelations chapter 9, or uh, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 9, and chapter 20, verse 2. Now, another important thing in verse 1 we're told is that this serpent is created by God. In fact, D.A. Carson mentions in his book, The God Who Is There, that this shows us how Satan is not equal to God. There is no battle between good and evil of two beings that were there in the beginning of time. There was only God. It wasn't good, it wasn't wicked going at it to see who was going to win. It's always God who's going to win. And we see from the beginning that this serpent, that Satan, he was created by God. Now, we don't know how or when Satan fell from heaven, and that's not the point right now in the biblical text. The point is he's created and beneath and dependent upon God. Now, a third thing we see with this serpent is that he has a non-existent relationship with God. You see, all throughout Genesis 3, the Hebrew and the English text always references God as Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God. Now, Yahweh, 
or God is a singular noun, and the personal name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush, meaning I am who I am. Elohim, our Lord, is a plural noun. So once again, we see that singularity in the plurality in showing the mystery of the Trinity right there. With this said, however, notice how the only area that God is not referred to throughout all of chapter 3 as Lord God is when the serpent is talking to Eve. That is, the serpent acknowledges who God is, but he, definitely, he does not reference him as Lord God. In fact, it, the Hebrew shows that the serpent does not call God Yahweh at all, rather just Elohim. And the NET Bible first edition notes elaborates on this to show us how the serpent has no covenant relationship with God. He doesn't know his personal name. Instead, this is a part of Satan's scheme to get the woman to play on his level of not acknowledging her relationship with God which unfortunately we find out works because if you see in verse 3, Eve does not refer to God as Lord God, just God. So as we reflect on this trickery serpent and his conversation with Eve, we often ask the question of, where's Adam? Where was he in all this? Sadly, fellows, I'm going to throw us right under the bus because too often in this story, we often like to point to the woman going, well, if she hadn't eaten the fruit, none of this would have happened. It's the woman's fault. And the truth is, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, you see, the blame rests with us. Uh, in the original Hebrew language, we're actually, we get to see that the pronouns used here with you and your, they're in a plural sense, not singular. So let me break it down. It's not like I'm sitting there going, speaking to you. It's I'm speaking to you all. The serpent, he's speaking to you all. And we know that if he's there and he's speaking to you all, there's only other one person, and that's Adam. So we know that Adam was present. We don't know how close. He could have been right next to Eve. He could have been a couple feet away, but he was close enough to know what was going on. In fact, the New American Commentary by K.A. Matthews helps us to see that Satan, he was talking in this manner in an effort to trick the woman into speaking on the man's behalf, which unfortunately works due to Adam's passivity. Now, with Satan's trickery in full swing and Adam's laziness apparent, let's turn our focus to the conversation and what's actually being stated. First, I want you to notice how Satan starts off the conversation by, by saying, did God say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? He's already twisting God's words by making it sound like Adam and Eve couldn't eat anything at all, when in fact we know they could eat of practically every tree except for one. Second, notice how in the conversation death is mentioned when repeating God's command not to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. And notice how Eve wrongfully adds on to God's command by saying if her or Adam even touch it, they're going to die. And that's not what God said. Now the serpent, he plays on this emotion by saying, you're not going to die. You'll be like God with knowledge. And I want you to key in on that. Like God. Think about it. Was the serpent lying when he said you will be like God and having knowledge of good and evil? No. No, he wasn't. All he plays on is you can be like him. So think of this example. If I sat there and said, you can be like a superhero, I'm going to give you a cape, and you can be just like a superhero, do you actually get the powers with that superhero from that cape? No, you get nothing. And so we see that the serpent leaves this portion out. What we see is that this like God statement that the serpent says fails to mention anything about it, about how to appropriately handle good and evil. Rather, the serpent, he leaves it out as he knows only God can do that. Now, if any luck, Adam and Eve are going to stop the serpent, and they're going to tell him, hey, knock it off. That was their job, right, to have dominion, to rule over creatures. In fact, 
Adam and Eve, if they even are curious, they can even turn to God because they do walk in a relationship with him. Remember, there is a relationship. We'll even see it in this chapter. God walks with them. So if they were curious, they could have turned to him at any point in time. The question is, will they? Sadly, we're going to find out that Adam and Eve, they do gain knowledge of good and evil. But it's not in the way that they ever expected. So if you're taking notes, I want you to first understand that the enemy comes prepared and knows God's word. Again, understand that the enemy comes prepared and knows God's word. Now let's continue to read on in verses 6 through 10. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Notice how he was with her. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of the garden, or the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now in verses six and seven, we see that Adam and Eve, they've made a terrible decision. They eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. They did the one thing God commanded them not to do. And now they have knowledge of good and evil and know nothing about how to handle it. And thus they commit the first sin, giving us a picturesque version of what sin truly is. Sin is that in which we disobey, we turn away from, or try to dethrone or place something above God. Now they never stopped to ask God, and they didn't stand up to the serpent as it was their job to do. Rather, they think about themselves first and how it sounds good to be like God. As such, in verse 8, we're introduced for the first time to this concept of being afraid and naked. Now, the Hebrew term for naked, or aram, carries the following definitions of naked, bare, or nakedness. And you're probably thinking, duh, I could have figured that one out on my own. But hang with me. The truth is, there's a context between or with this Hebrew word. And it's used to show that while it can mean naked or without clothes, it can also mean naked as in to be without something much more critically needed. If you recall in verse 10, which we just read, Adam talks about how he was now afraid in association with his nakedness, whereas before, we haven't ever read about the human emotion of fear in the Bible. This signals that something much more than clothes is missing. Pause and think about that for a second and what nakedness really means. Have you ever felt that your situation was so out of control that you could see and that everybody else could see your own faults? Have you ever felt that all your sinful secrets that you tried to hide away in a closet would come back to haunt you one day and that people would see right through you? This is the brokenness and the nakedness that's being described here. The type where you feel ashamed and scared for someone else to find out who you truly are or what you've truly done wrong in sinfulness. This is what happens when we turn from God to ourselves to seek assurance. We trade a perfect love that envelops us for a false assurance in ourselves and others that can never satisfy us. Simply stated, by Adam and Eve's actions, they became aware of their sin and depravity. Moreover, they became aware of good and evil, like God, all right, but it came at the cost of losing the perfect, loving relationship with the one who created them, 
and is the only one who can handle good and evil. Worse yet, we see this pattern that starts to emerge that sets the tone for the rest of scriptures, and that is humanity seeking to turn to themselves for salvation instead of to God. This is a pattern that leads to nothing but destruction as humanity turns to sinfully idolizing everything but the creator himself. So if you're taking notes, I want you to understand that true nakedness is a lost relationship with God. Again, true nakedness is a lost relationship with God. Now let's continue on in the story and read verses 11 through 19 to see what's going to happen. The Lord God, he, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till, the return, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now with this terrible selfish decision made, and humanity now facing fear for the first time, and a broken relationship with God, we get a real sense of the command that was actually broken. Let me explain. You see, the Hebrew word for commanded, used in verses 11 and 17, it carries with it more than just a connotation of doing something or not doing something. See, in Hebrew, when you do the word study, it teaches you that there's always a positive or a negative implication that's tied in with it. For example, when the command to do or not do something is followed, peace ensues. However, when the command is broken, death of some sort is usually associated. This helps to show that Adam and Eve's failure to follow God's command led to death and the essence of sin and a broken relationship with God. Sadly, while the most important relationship with God is broken, it's not the only one that's been destroyed. You see, in verse 12, we once again get Hebrew text that goes out of the word order. In other words, instead of the action first again, they put something else there, meaning pay attention to this. And in verse 12, this is where God is asking Adam what happened, what went wrong. And the first word that comes forth is woman. Adam's first reaction is to blame the woman. The woman, the woman, the one you gave me. Notice the second part of that. He tries to blame the woman, and when that doesn't work, where does he turn to? The woman that you gave me. He tries to blame God. Now let's pause and think about the story so far. God creates mankind to have dominion underneath him to watch over all the creatures in the earth. A serpent, i.e. a creature, arrives to trick humanity who has God-given authority over him, but humanity fails to take dominion over this creature and rule with their God-given authority. 
Instead, humanity turns against God, their creator. In other words, Satan is trying to turn the perfectly good created world upside down. And now it becomes clear more than ever, we need a savior. We need somebody who can defeat our enemy because we are broken. Now, as we pause and reflect on the created order being a mess and humanity to blame for not standing up, all hope seems lost. For in their attempt to seek sinful self-autonomy, Adam and Eve have instead found death as God stated. The created world is now set forth on a dying physical path. And humanity's broken relationship with God has caused spiritual death. In this effort, creation has found a one-way street to pain and death. Now you would think God as the creator would do away with everything right then and there. His creation sought a path to be without him. I mean, he knows the path of how much it's going to take to redeem us. He knows through thousands of years how much mankind will hate him, how much will turn away from him. But yet God does something different. He instead puts the created order back together. God only curses the snake, not humanity. He tells us in the midst of anguish, back in verse 15, that, the only, that one day the woman will have an offspring, that though they will suffer affliction, this offspring, this coming savior, he will suffer affliction from the serpent known as Satan, but that he will nevertheless defeat him. In other words, God answers the call already seeing that we need a savior to defeat our enemy Satan. He then righteously and tells us continually, uh, or then he righteously continues to reset the created order by showing how Eve's childbirth pains will be multiplied and how her position will return as a helper under the charge of man. He then turns to Adam by resetting and reasserting how he will now be in pain as he works the earth to care for it as he was supposed to in the first place. So if you're taking notes, this proves right from the beginning that God works through our brokenness to accomplish his good and perfect will. Again, God works through our brokenness to accomplish his good and perfect will. Now let's finish the story, reading verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, after reading these verses, we once again see the Holy Trinity is present in verse 20. I.e., God, singular, states mankind has become like one of us. There's that three-in-one mystery again. Finally, we see how God prevents us from doing any further harm to ourselves. He blocks us off from re-entering the Garden of Eden to partake of the tree of life, which would permanently leave us in this broken, sinful state. And thus concludes the beginning of the fall of mankind, which occurred in a garden. Now, at this point in the biblical record, we're a broken mess. We've been defeated by the enemy, Satan, and we need a Savior to bring us back into a rightful relationship with God. We need Jesus. So as we close, how does this apply to you today? You've heard this story a million times, but do you truly know what it means? Well, the first application I want you to get is that Satan uses ordinary things to derail us from God. Again, Satan uses ordinary things to derail us from God. 
You see, our enemy doesn't have to do anything extraordinary to trick us. He didn't. You see, first we saw Satan use certain words, or we saw him come in the form of a serpent, a creature, to deceive man and woman. Second, we saw him use certain words while leaving out others to deceive the woman's thoughts about God and to break his command. He also takes advantage of the man's laziness. As a result, the man and woman's deception is completed and the fall of mankind occurs with sin entering into the world. And what this shows us is that Satan will use ordinary measures in order to pry us away from God. And if we're not alert to it and we become uh, passive as Adam did, we too will fall into Satan's schemes. As such, I implore you, get smart on this situation. You need to devote yourself to Scripture, to prayer, to the only one who knows how to handle the knowledge of good and evil. We need to go and meet Jesus at the throne daily. For it is only through the Holy Spirit, God's Word, and Jesus' work on the cross that we can overcome the devil's schemes. Now, the second application I want you to get from this is run to Christ, run to God, not away from Him. Again, Run to Christ, not away from him. Because during the fall, we see the beginning effects of sin appear in the form of blaming others and in the fear of hiding away from God. And that's true because we see it in verse 12 where Adam tries to blame Eve and then God. He doesn't take responsibility. And his failure to do so drives him further away from the truth and a relationship with God. Now I want you to pause and reflect as this is a solemn reminder to us today. That when we sin, we shouldn't be afraid and run from God. Rather, we should be running towards God. We should be doing it in prayer and in repentance. We should know that God is the only one who can make us whole again through Jesus Christ and truly fix the situation as he has time and time again and is evidenced in these verses. Also reflect upon the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, in which he states, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, God is the only one who can make it right and who has through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. All you need to do is to turn to him. Put your trust and your faith in him. Believe in him and his work on the cross. Grow in him. And if you're not sure how to do that, that's okay, see me after service. I'd be happy to come alongside you. Now, the third application I want you to get is that when you're in Christ, you are never naked. Again, when you are in Christ, you are never naked. Now, I'm going to be honest. Genesis 3 has a lot of teaching points, and I probably could have spent days up here on this stage, but knowing you're all in turkey comas at this point in time, it wouldn't have been a good sight. But one of the most important that I wanted to teach here is this Hebrew term, iram, or naked. So we noted in our study, it means much more than just to be without clothes. It means a lost, broken relationship with God. You see, we were broken. We were ashamed. We lost everything that mattered to us when we turned from God. We lost our connection with him. And luckily for us, God didn't end things in the manner like he could have. Instead, he gave us a new path to him. He gave us a new covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's taken away our shame. He's taken away our nakedness of those who believe in his name and his work on the cross. So on those days you feel Satan trying to remind you about your nakedness, turn to Christ and remember, you have no shame in him. Remember, 
how our text showed us today that we clearly needed someone to defeat our enemy. We needed a Savior to clothe us. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. We need our Savior, Jesus. So as we turn to the table now, I want to share with you something amazing that I read from one of my textbooks recently called Faith Speaking Understanding by Kevin Van Hooser. It's actually what inspired the sermon title. You see, he makes the point in here that, as we learned, where did mankind fall? In a garden, the Garden of Eden. And isn't it God's poetic justice that he sees that we need this Savior to defeat the enemy? And he provides that for us. And he not only defeats Satan on the cross, he defeats him in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Hence why we needed a second garden. For because of Jesus' prayer to do his Father's will and carry out his work on the cross, we have been given a new covenant, one forged by his body and blood. And this table and these elements represent the fact that because of Jesus' work on the cross, for those that believe in him, we get to sit at this table in a righteous relationship with God. This table doesn't mean you have to be perfect before God because the truth is you're not. And it doesn't mean that you have to be sinless. You're not. Rather, for those in Christ, we're seen as righteous because of Jesus' work on the cross. Coming to this table is our opportunity to meet God, to thank him. It's our opportunity to humbly state that Christ is enough and to acknowledge the work he's finished on the cross has covered our sins for all time. Let's go to prayer and let's reflect on that. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that in our worst moment, that when we turned away, that we sought ourselves, that we lost a connection with you, that you didn't leave us like this, that you forged ahead and you provided a path for us even from the very beginning, that you worked through our brokenness, that you found a way to clothe us and take away our shame through Jesus. And thank you that because of him we can meet you at the table that we can sit with you in a rightful relationship. I pray that we would just still our hearts as we remember the reason for this season, that we would look to you and see that we have no more shame, that we have a reason for joy, for your body and blood shed for us. All God's people said, amen. Please continue to take this time to just focus on your relationship with Christ. Pour your heart out to God. Continue to ask him to help you to grow in him. You know, when we look at this, this plastic but bread, um, I think the beauty of it is we get to see what Christ truly did on the cross for us. We get to see that his body was broken, that it was beaten, and that it was bruised, all in an effort so that we could come home in a rightful relationship with him. Think about that. Reflect on that. Take this bread and eat it in remembrance of him. As we turn now to this cup, we get to reflect on the fact of what it truly means. His blood shed on the cross for us so that we could come home unashamed. Take it. Reflect on it and drink it.
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you sent your Son to die for us, that we can come home to you unashamed, that we can be clothed again, that we can be naked no more, that we can be in this rightful relationship with you. Thank you that we get the chance to meet you at this table, that we get to reflect on all you did, and I pray that it would settle on our hearts, that we would truly see that you knowing all that we would do to turn away from you, you still came after us. You still loved us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you. And thank you for the Holy Spirit you send to us. And I pray that we would continue to grow, that this message would settle on our hearts. Father, we love you. And it is in your holy name, your blessed name, your son's name that we pray. Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship our King.